you're listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington, and my research focuses on machine learning methods for generating and reasoning with natural language. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Andrew Lampinen, a research scientist at DeepMind. His research focuses on cognitive flexibility and generalization, and how these abilities are enabled by factors such as language, memory, and embodiment. Andrew's PhD thesis is titled, A Computational Framework for Learning and Transforming Task Representations, which he completed in 2020 at Stanford University. We talk about cognitive flexibility in brains and machines, centered around his work in the thesis on metamapping, a learning framework based on learning to adapt through a long-term, slow learning process to allow for rapidly adapting to new tasks. We cover a lot of interesting ground, including complementary learning systems and memory, compositionality and systematicity, and the role of symbols in machine learning. Andrew was advised by Jay McClelland, who was on episode 31 of the thesis review. And there's also connections with discussions of meta-learning with Chelsea Finn in episode 10. So be sure to listen to those and all of the other episodes that we've had so far in the thesis review. The thesis review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. To support the podcast, go to patreon.com slash thesisreview, or make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash thesisreview. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Andrew Lampinen with A Computational Framework for Learning and Transforming Task Representations on the Thesis Review. Yeah, so in your thesis, you discuss both machine learning, but also connect it a lot with humans and human cognition. So maybe just a fun question to start. Do you have a favorite aspect of human cognition? Yeah, I think it's got to be the way humans can construct such interesting systems out of so little, whether it's, you know, kids playing with a set of sticks and creating a whole fantasy world of magic and so on, or you know, you and I creating structures of knowledge around machine learning or cultures or whatever, people build really complicated systems that they collaborate upon that have meaning to us. And so like, has this, has the aspect of human cognition, did that kind of draw you into the field or were you more interested in the machine learning side? Yeah, so I I originally got into the field from the human cognition side, I guess, although I had some interest in both areas, but I was really interested in how people learn math. So this is one of those systems of knowledge I was talking about, and I um, got into the field from thinking about how I could study that and ended up studying machine learning sort of as a attempt to get to understanding that. During undergrad, were you already doing research in this area or just like kind of reading about it? No, yeah. So I in undergrad, I did some research in physics and math. That was actually what my undergrad degrees were in. And I got interested in understanding 
how people learn math because I was actually teaching math in undergrad. And so I was kind of interested in just like the different patterns I saw and how people were able to learn, but they sort of needed to work with examples in order to understand a theorem and stuff. And I was interested in the relationships between those different kinds of knowledge, like your abstract understanding of a theorem and your relatively more concrete understanding of particular examples that instantiate that theorem, things like that. After doing that, did you have a sense that these these aspects that you like about the human cognition, they're kind of acquired over time or there's people have them to varying degrees? I think that people definitely differ along pretty much any axis you can think of. And the debates about which of those differences are sort of, you know, something intrinsic to us versus which are due to our experience are pretty old. I tend to land more on the side of thinking things are influenced by our experience and our environments. Like certainly an education in formal mathematics gives you access to different ways of thinking about the world, I think. But I I don't want to take a strong stance on how much is, you know, I don't want to rule out the position that some things are due to intrinsic differences. Okay, yeah, so that's pretty interesting. So you almost got like this kind of firsthand experience doing the mathematics yourself and then maybe like introspecting about the different thought processes that are involved. So then like leading up, like deciding to do a PhD, how did you then decide that this wasn't just like, you know, something which seemed interesting and something that you actually want to do research about? Well, I think there's always a little bit of chance in how how research trajectories and career trajectories go. And in fact, most of the PhD programs I applied to were in neuroscience, and I wouldn't really have been working on understanding how people learn math. But mm. I saw the website of the person who ended up being my advisor, Jay McClelland, and he was working on math cognition. And I was like, wow, that's perfect. And I sent him an email. We chatted a few times, and we really hit it off. And so that's, that's why I ended up actually working on this topic, I think. There were other areas I was interested in, just sort of like, lower level things about decision-making and so on and how neuronal dynamics actually work that I didn't really end up studying, but this was the interest that I sort of by chance pursued and I'm happy with how it worked out. So then it was in, uh, you entered in neuroscience and then kind of the the main topic in your thesis um, really touches on areas in machine learning. So could you just talk through the kind of initial stages? Was there some exploration that you did that you had to decide whether to focus like purely on neuroscience or yeah, just like what were the early stages like as you started your PhD? Yeah, so I did a I did some work actually my my first year of my PhD on how humans learned math and my advisor had always done a lot of uh, modeling work with neural networks. That was an area I was sort of very interested in, had some expertise with as well. And so I wanted to try to understand in neural networks some of the things I was interested in in mathematics in simple settings. In particular, this idea that sort of different structures of knowledge that are related could sort of um, support each other. So if you know something about different areas of mathematics, there's sort of common themes across them, like isomorphism or sameness. And so I was very interested in this idea that by learning about a bunch of different things that have a similar structure, you could get benefits to how you understand each of them. 
So I wanted to pursue modeling of that topic and I sort of got dragged off into that, I think, again, partly just by my, by chance and by my interests changing. And so I, I didn't actually spend that much time working on math cognition per se. I got more interested into the kind of neural network learning side and trying to understand from a more computational perspective how some of these things could come about. Yeah, I see. That makes sense. And then like the introductory part of the thesis is really nice and it does this really thorough uh, kind of survey and it touches on areas from several disciplines. Uh, and one of the topics is this idea of cognitive flexibility. So we kind of quickly hinted at it. What What is this idea of cognitive flexibility and what are some of like the, the key themes that start showing up uh, in your thesis? Yeah, so I, I think the idea is broadly that, you know, for, for humans, we can take our knowledge and we can adapt it to a new situation that's not quite the situation where we've used that knowledge before. So, for example, if you know how to play a game like chess, and I say, oh, I'm going to introduce you to a variant of this game where I change some of the rules, uh, it will be pretty easy for you to take the knowledge you have and sort of adapt it to this setting. You won't do a perfect job at it, but you'll do a pretty good job. And so that, that's a kind of like flexible way of reusing your knowledge in a new setting that's sometimes challenging for neural network models. They're good at learning something. They're not so good at adapting their knowledge. So, yeah, like... It if we think about humans, how flexible are humans? Uh, like, do you think that sometimes in, in papers, it's, it's easy to have like a one liner, which says like, oh, humans are systematic generalizers, or they can quickly learn things. Do you think that it's more, more nuanced than that? Yeah, I definitely do. So maybe you should have mentioned this earlier. But one of the reasons that I got interested in math cognition while I was teaching it is that I noticed that people actually had a fairly hard time learning these mathematical concepts. So I was teaching mm -hmm. intro calculus classes, the relatively harder intro calculus classes at Berkeley. So I was teaching to a pretty smart set of students who were taking challenging classes, and it still took them quite a while to wrap their heads around things like integration by parts or whatever. And they really had to work with it for a while, work through a bunch of examples, get feedback, talk to each other about it before they really got the concept. And so I guess I think it is easy to make a statement like, oh, humans can adapt their knowledge. You tell them something, they'll integrate it, they'll get it. It's fine. It's not quite like that in practice. And to some extent, I think that that's actually a learned ability. So, of course, if you tell a professional mathematician, a new theorem, they'll be able to understand it pretty quickly, and they'll be able to sort of work with that theorem almost immediately. If you tell it to a first-year math student, they'll have a lot harder time. And so I think that to some extent, at least, we can sort of develop this ability, partly across domains and partly within a particular domain we work in, to take a new piece of knowledge and be able to sort of flexibly adapt it to new situations. Yeah, that's really interesting. And then I guess at the time, um, this was probably a main critique of the deep learning models. I mean, they were being trained on very large data sets and really in this supervised setting. 
maybe this is jumping too far forward, but just like has your view of this critique of deep learning changed over time that like maybe when you started your PhD, it seemed like flexibility uh, was really limited and now it's uh, maybe less limited or yeah, I'd be curious to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, I'd certainly agree that it's less limited now than it used to be. I mean, some of the things that transformers can do are pretty impressive. And even earlier in my PhD, when people started developing better meta-learning models and so on, we got models that were able to at least learn certain kinds of things very rapidly. So I, I do think that over my PhD, the sort of state of the field has shifted a lot. On the other hand, it does seem like there's still some gaps in you know, the extent to which these models can, even a very flexible model in some sense, like GPT-3, the extent to which that can adapt to a new task, few shot versus humans. Um, so you can get decent performance out of these models, but there's still a lot of arguments about how much of that is just, you know, having seen almost exactly the same problem in training, which is very hard to verify with something like GPT-3, or, you know, picking up on some sort of like lower level cue that might give away the answer, but might not really be the intent of the problem. And of course, in some instances, humans might be doing this sort of thing too. And like I said earlier, humans aren't perfect uh, few shot learners. So it's a spectrum and things have definitely gotten more flexible, but I think there's a ways to go before we can get to really human level adaptation. Uh -huh, yeah. Yeah, there definitely was something interesting that happened that like ironically by being data hungry by training on a, a large amount of data we actually acquired some amount of uh, data efficiency on new tasks with with something like gpt3 so that was kind of maybe unexpected but then like you're saying it's definitely not perfect um, it might be that training on a large amount of data does cause it to do some kind of you know sophisticated lookup which might not be the most robust. Yeah, 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 that is interesting. I mean, I mean, in retrospect, of course, it seems like, well, yeah, like at, at some level, if you're trying to predict language as well as possible, you're going to have to learn all the sort of higher order relationships within language, which includes the fact that in a particular situation, you know, if you have like a set of problems, they're mostly going to be solved in the same way. So it, in some in some sense, it makes sense that the task of language modeling captures all this sort of higher order reasoning, um, in, including you know adapting to a new set of tasks very rapidly. But it's it still was pretty surprising to me when I first saw that paper. Yeah, it does give some some hope that there's more surprises, that there's more like emergent uh, capabilities almost, given the objective that you're optimizing the capabilities that the model obtains are not necessarily what you expect. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I expect that this potential will only increase as we get models that are trained a little bit more like humans. So in particular, mm -hmm. I think that some of these language models limitations are because they don't have the sort of grounded interactive and social experience that humans have. We talked about this a little bit in our recent paper on symbolic behavior. And I think that 
each of those aspects, sort of having knowledge of the real world through grounding, having interactive knowledge rather than sort of passive learning, and having social interactions in particular can be very important for developing kind of the flexible cognitive abilities that humans have. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. I'm hopeful that we'll see more emergence in models to come. So it could be that the kind of complexity of the world that we live in kind of leads to this emergence. Like it, it ends up being so complex that we can't exactly write down how we get the capabilities. Yeah. I, I think that there's definitely a sense of, you know, you've mentioned emergence a couple of times. I think that's a super important topic when discussing these models. I think there's definitely a sense in which the whole is more than the sum of its parts with complex training data. Uh, so for instance, we have this, uh, paper on factors in the environment that affect generalization. And basically one of the things we found is that having a more complex environment just makes your model better, even if the task is fixed. So for example, having mm. an interactive 3D environment versus doing a task as an image classifier, exactly the same task. Um, the, the agent that's doing it in an interactive environment just generalizes the task much better. And we think, you know, there's a couple of ways you can think about this, but one is that basically the richness of the, the environment gives us a, a sort of like inherent data augmentation that forces the agent to adapt to more variation and thereby maybe helps it to discover what the right underlying structure is. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I think that, yeah, complexity can be very important. And then do you think that there's a mixture of, you kind of have the complexity, which intuitively to me, it seems like it would give you some kind of like general skills. But then going back to the math example, there's also an aspect of designing the correct tasks, which target something specifically. And so like potentially uh, it's also a matter of constructing the right tasks that target certain things. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think for, for humans, culture has constructed over thousands or tens of thousands of years, perhaps these sets of curricula that develop, you know, systems of knowledge. Our education systems are maybe, you know, a few thousand years old, at least in some sense. And I think that we may need sort of an equivalent amount of thought put into, or at least a somewhat comparable amount of thought put into developing curricula for our agents and our models that help them to discover all the important structure of the world and that, you know, sort of systematically build up these concepts. On the other hand, in practice in deep learning, it seemed like often having a good curriculum is not worth as much as just collecting 10 times more data. And so I think it's kind of an open question still, to what extent we'll really need to build a good curriculum rather than just collecting a lot more data and letting the model sort of figure things out on its own. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I would recommend anyone um, listening to read through this, the first part of the thesis, because it kind of touches, it weaves these, these topics together really nicely. There was one idea that I wanted to ask you about, and it's this complementary systems theory. Uh, Cause it was mentioned a few times throughout the thesis um, kind of, what is this? And uh, did I read it correctly that this was kind of a, maybe like a common thread that you thought about during your PhD? 
Yeah, absolutely. So complementary learning systems theory is basically the idea that the human brain and lots of other brains have two learning systems, a sort of fast learning system, which is associated with the medial temporal lobe and hippocampus, which basically stores episodic memories on your first exposure to something. So you remember something that happened last week, that sort of knowledge that's stored in this fast memory system. And then there's a slower learning system, the cortex, that sort of integrates information over much longer timescales. So the cortex mostly doesn't store information about something that happened last week, but sort of larger patterns of occurrences, like the fact that, you know, doors tend to have knobs that can open them or whatever, sort of more abstract knowledge about the world. And complementary learning systems theory is basically the idea that these two systems help support each other because the fast learning system can take an experience and teach it to the slower learning system over time. And the slow learning system sets up the representations that the fast learning system uses to store its experience. So because the, the slow learning system knows things about the structure of the world, it makes it easier for the fast learning system to incorporate that structure into its members. So that's the basic idea. It's definitely played a major role in my thinking in particular, the idea that learning over longer timescales can help set you up to adapt over shorter timescales. So I mentioned this earlier with the case of math, the idea that you know an experienced mathematician might be able to adapt to a new theorem rapidly, whereas someone less experienced might not be able to. And this is one instance where sort of a, a lifetime of experience learning about mathematics can set you up to very quickly adapt to a new situation. Mm -hmm. I see. So then did that kind of directly or loosely motivate the kind of main topic of your thesis, this idea of meta mapping? Yeah, it definitely did. So basically the idea of meta mapping is that you could learn how to adapt to new tasks over a long time scale. And then when you need to perform a new task, you can use this system to adapt rapidly. So because you've learned about adaptation over a long time, you can adapt rapidly to a new task. And this is related to other ideas that people have been doing for a while, like meta learning. What was just kind of the backstory of doing this meta mapping? Had you like kind of worked on a few projects and came to, uh, uh, you know, want to develop this kind of framework, which then was able to apply to a lot of projects or... Yeah, just in terms of the um, the backstory of coming up with this idea. Yeah, so I, I think there were a few threads that came together. So one was Brendan Lake put out this really great paper called Building Machines That Learn and Think Like People that was sort of a, a large set of challenges for deep learning researchers saying, you know, these are ways that deep learning isn't like human learning. And one of the things that they talked about in that paper was the sort of idea that humans, when they learn something, can then adapt that knowledge to new goals. So this example I gave earlier of like switching to a variation of the game is basically taken verbatim from that paper. They were talking about like learning a video game and then trying to lose at it or trying to beat your friend, but not too badly so they don't get your friend doesn't get embarrassed or whatever. And so I got really inspired by this idea of, you know, taking something that you've learned how to do and then adapting on your first try to a new variation of that thing that maybe in the case of trying to lose a video game, for instance, 
actually contradicts everything you were trying to do before. Uh, so that was, that was one theme that led to my interest in this. And then the other theme was that I was thinking about, I mentioned earlier, this idea that common structure across different tasks could support the learning of each task individually. And so I started to think about, well, maybe what allows you to adapt to a new task rapidly is that there's some sort of higher order structure in the space of tasks. There's this notion of, let's say, winning and losing that you have in common across many different types of games and situations and variations and so on. And it's because of that higher order knowledge about the structure of the space of games that you're able to adapt rapidly to trying to lose a game that you've never tried to lose before. And that was sort of the inspiration of, for this project. Yeah, I see. And then so some of the, some of like the key ideas, I encourage any, any listener to, um, you know, read the, the thesis or the associated papers, but some of the key ideas are like you represent the task, uh, you learn a task representation, and then you have these uh, mappings between tasks, right? Yeah. So, so I have to say that like, Learning a, ta a representation for tasks is something that happens either explicitly or Im implicitly in quite a few different meta-learning systems. And so I sort of built upon that idea from other work, although my take on it may have been slightly different. And I think the more novel part of my work was this focus on the relationships between tasks and task representations. So then like, what would be a concrete example? I mean, you gave some in the thesis um, of these different like what would a example task mapping be? And then what type of generalization would you actually try to obtain uh, with this overall system? Right, so the kind of a generalization I was interested in was this ability to perform a new task zero shot on your first try. And I was interested in this pretty much because it was stated in uh, this building machines that learn and think like people paper that you know, humans can adapt to a new task on their first try. You tell them, I want you to try to lose at this game, they can do it. And so trying to switch from winning to losing at a game is one kind of task relationship I considered in the paper, but I also considered a lot of other relationships across a variety of domains. So different kinds of uh, visual categories and the relationships you could have between them. For example, you could switch the color or shape of something or um, different mathematical objects and the kind of mathematical relationships you could have between them and, and two different a sort of uh, set of card games with variations and a set of reinforcement learning tasks with variations. Those were the settings I considered. So I tried to take mm -hmm. this idea of learning task representations and then learning to use relationships between them and to apply it across a wide range of domains to show that was kind of a general idea. Uh-huh, yeah. Did you have a, um, like a favorite domain or favorite experiment? Sometimes it's like the, the first experiment you get to work or, you know, sometimes it's actually like a more complex one. You know, it's funny that you mentioned this because I just remembered that the first experiment I got this to work on is actually not in the thesis at all. It was this pretty simple <laughs> experiment with like, uh, binary functions that was suggested by one of my committee members. Um, so I guess that must not have been my favorite or I would have put it in the dissertation. But 
I think probably the reinforcement learning setting was my favorite one, just because I wasn't sure whether I could get, I, I used a model-free reinforcement learning setup, and people like to say that model-free reinforcement learning can't really adapt to new tasks very well. And so I wasn't sure that the kind of approach I was using would work well in this setting, basically because the model doesn't just have to change one decision, but has to change the whole plan it uses to execute its actions. Uh, but it turned out that it worked pretty decently, at least in the simple tasks that I considered. Yeah, one question I had is, um, uh, like you did some different experiments comparing the, the meta mapping with language, because, you know, language is another way to specify different tasks. And I was just curious, like, one thing that's been happening just very, very recently is that there's been a kind of a shift in NLP where everyone's focusing on this few shot or zero shot setting uh, through language. And so I was just curious what your perspective on this was, uh, since you had been working kind of on this theme for multiple years. Do you maybe like think about language as more promising now? Or like, would you still try to pursue the more like, uh, you know, explicit task representation and, and mapping direction? Just, yeah, how do you kind of think about these two alternatives? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think in some ways I always thought that using language to solve the problem in some sense was the right way. Like the examples I gave to you were things like your friend tells you, tells you you're going to play a variation of a game, right? So you're getting that sort of like hint about what you're going to do in language. So at, at some level, it seems like you want to solve the problem from language. And when I compared to language learning in my dissertation, there was always this sort of problem in the back of my mind, which I may or may not have explicitly mentioned in either the dissertation or the paper version, which is basically that I was working with a model that learns language in a very simplified framework. There's not a lot of language that it gets to interact with relative to something like GPT-3 that processes, I don't know how many billions of words. Um, and so you can kind of get a qualitative difference where a model with enough experience of language might be able to do something with from language just fine in a way that my model cannot, in just the same kind of way that, you know, GPT-3 can do some things that a smaller language model can. So mm -hmm. I think that there may be interesting aspects of these ideas to that could be useful even in a setting where you have a richer model that's learning from richer data. Um, but I think probably creating sort of explicit representations of particular tasks and trying to specify explicit relationships between them might be a little bit too limiting. And ideally what you'd want is a system that can kind of do some softer version of the, this by leveraging the cues in language about what the relationships between different tasks and sort of constructing soft representations that capture some of the similarity among tasks. I don't quite know how to build something like that, but it's something I'm thinking about in the back of my mind and I hope to get there someday. Yeah, that is interesting. 
and yeah, it gets at this idea that like in, in machine learning, we kind of set up clear task boundaries. Like this is a task, this is part of a task, but it seems like with humans, it all kind of flows together a bit more. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if that's, if the difference between what we're doing now and the kind of more, uh, you know, like continuous set of tasks is a big difference or if, um, that actually won't be too big of an issue. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of these big language models are tra trained in sort of streaming settings where they don't really have a notion of a separation between tasks. It's just that they switch from, you know, one web page to another or whatever data they're processing. So in some sense, it seems like the models can handle that kind of setting. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the case for humans and animals is interesting because it seems like we have some... If you look in the neuroscience literature, you'll find a lot of research on sort of like our explicit or implicit awareness of the switches between different tasks and different structures within a task, like if you have people doing the laboratory experiment. Um, so there's definitely some representations in our brain that kind of keep track of sort of the structure of what's going on and register the change when that structure changes. And there may be interesting things to be learned from neuroscience there and how we can build models that can adapt to sort of a continuous sequence of tasks. It'd be interesting to compare. I know there's been some work on this area in this area already from Chelsea Finn, among other people. So it'd be very interesting to see whether any of the things they've come up with kind of align with what humans, humans brains do in these kinds of settings. And on the note of, of human brains, um, so you had a section in the thesis uh, you know, commenting on potential connections to human cognition. Uh, I was just curious, like, is this something that you would pursue further or that others have, have picked up on? Yeah, just like, what are your interests and other people's interests in human cognition kind of in this area? So it's definitely something that I'm interested in. I haven't pursued it exactly with this particular model. I mean, I did have humans do some of the tasks that I had the model do, and I sort of made some comparisons of performance and stuff and adaptation in the dissertation. But I think that ultimately this model isn't quite the perfect fit for how humans adapt to new tasks. I mean, I think it's capturing some ideas that might be important, but I think that the human-like model would be a little bit softer, kind of like this sort of speculative project that I was describing before, where it sort of relies on cues from language rather than having explicit relationships between tasks and so on. So mm -hmm. as I get to a model that's more, feels to me more human-like, I think I'll be even more excited about sort of trying to relate it to what humans actually do and seeing the relationship there. But... Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean there's not interesting things to be taken away from this model about human cognition. And we related to some things in the dissertation, like cognitive control, where the model, some aspects of the model make interesting predictions that I haven't seen in other cognitive control architectures. So I'd be very curious if anyone's following up on that, but I'm not myself. Uh-huh. Cool. Yeah. And then maybe I, I was just processing kind of the, uh, this complementary systems theory, um, the way you described it. And it seems like there's multiple ways of doing some just like loose conceptual mapping 
of complementary systems theory onto deep learning. So, you know, you have this fast and slow distinction. So you could say potentially the slow aspect is something like a large pre-trained model. And then the fast aspect would be, you know, prompting it with some task and then the actual activations as it passes through the model. But then like you were also kind of describing it in terms of memory. So maybe it's actually suggesting that we need some additional memory component to go beyond like the 2048 character limit of GPT-3. Um, and I'm sure there's there's other ways of, of mapping this. So yeah, how do you think about um, kind of how this lines up with um, what we do in machine learning and how it might suggest what's missing? Yeah, so I, I was definitely taking loose inspiration from complementary learning systems theory in my dissertation. And the memory component of it is really a key feature of the original theory, and particularly the idea that you can sort of see something once, perhaps, and then you can remember it for a long time, maybe the rest of your life. And mm -hmm. I do feel like that's something that some of these you know, models like large language models are missing. They can learn something fast. Yes, meta-learning models are very good at that, but they usually have to throw away that knowledge at the end of an episode or whatever so that they can go on to the next task and learn something else new. Uh, whereas human knowledge building, of course, is much more continual. Sure, we forget lots of things, but there's lots of things that we encounter once or a few times and then we remember for a very long time afterward. So I do think that that aspect is missing in some of these models. Um, but it also might not require a huge radical change to the architectures to achieve it. So I was actually in, an, we organized this workshop around uh, sort of trying to bring cognitive scientists and machine learning researchers together at uh, the Cognitive Science Conference this year. And I was in this, got involved in this very interesting con conversation about episodic memory and the sort of like memorization of single training examples in some of these large language models. Because in some sense, that's exactly like what I described. The model sees a training example once, it probably never goes through the whole corpus even a single time. And so it's never seeing that same example again. But nevertheless, you can kind of get the model to spit back out that exact training example. Um, and so to some extent, it seems like these models have some of this capacity already, and it might not require that much change into the architecture to make it a little bit more explicit. I mean, we kind of know some interesting things about what are the architectural differences between like cortex and the hippocampus and so on. It would be interesting to try to build some of those things into these architectures and see if the model learns where to store certain kinds of knowledge. I don't know if anyone's working on that, but it would be cool. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it does seem like figuring out how to get this kind of fast adaptation to work, though, in practice is still open. Like if you're like I was thinking in terms of dialogue, if you're having a really long dialogue and you want to, you know, learn some specific facts and remember them over the course of the dialogue, do you update the model weights? Do you have some kind of small memory that's continuously accessed this applies to to programs too if you're writing a really long program should you be updating the model weights with the you know part of the um 
things that are referenced. So it'll be interesting, I think, to to see yeah. what happens there. I think there's a ton that can be learned from human memory here because we're so incredibly good at this. You know, you and I can have a conversation and then we go away for like six months and then we chat again sometime and we can remember a lot of what we talked about. We can really like reinstate that context from the past in a way that's just radically different from anything we have in machine learning right now, I would argue. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I actually had this paper recently trying to get RL agents to do something a tiny bit more like this uh, Mm -hmm. that would allow them to sort of like carry something they meta-learned beyond the episode they learned in. And it works on a very sort of like still short time scale. It's like you learn to remember things for, you know, 30 seconds and then you can maybe keep them around for five minutes or whatever. But the exact approach I used is far from something that could scale to the power of human memory, I think. So I think it's an area that there that really deserves more research. Uh-huh. Yeah. Cool. And then, yeah, I think it, it came up previously, but um, I wanted to just discuss this aspect of like, you know, systematic generalization and, compositionality and how we might obtain that in machine learning. So throughout the thesis, um, you had mentioned this other work that you had done uh, on this multimodal, uh, kind of this multimodal environment, and the model obtains some amount of systematic generalization. And I think the, um, you know, the, the other uh, argument or the kind of intuitive temptation is to say like there's actually certain symbolic aspects that we should build into the model so yeah i just wanted to get your sense on this like do we have to build something into the task distribution and is that a good way of learning these things or yeah what's your what's your sense (laughs) yeah so i think I tend to think that learning a kind of systematic behavior from the tasks that you experience will be better than learning it, than actually building it into the architecture. And Mm -hmm. one of the reasons for that is that I tend to believe that the real world isn't perfectly systematic or compositional. So... Mm -hmm. If you take the case of natural language, which is where a lot of these ideas about compositionality sort of first emerged, um, there's clearly some relationship between, you know, the phrase kick the ball and the phrase kick the wall and the phrase kick the bucket. But one of these phrases is sort of very unlike the others. And all of them have kind of different shades of connotation. So the idea of like compositional systematicity would be that you basically treat each phrase in the same way. It's just like you, you know, you put the parts together, kick the ball means the same thing more or less as kick the bucket. And of course, to deal with exceptions like kick the bucket, you know, you can add various kinds of other rules on top of your systematic compositionality. But I tend to think that the structure of language is such that there's always sort of differences in meaning kick the bucket is a very strong exception, but even kick the ball versus kick the wall or something has different connotations, different sort of energy to it, different things it brings to mind. 
And I think that by building in a kind of systematic compositionality, you're actually going to limit the model from understanding these things. And I think this is one of the reasons that these large language models that explicitly don't build in any sort of compositional processing, any sort of strict grammar or anything, are the best models we have of language to date. So that's a pretty controversial statement, but that's my take on the issue right now. And right, so then stepping back to tasks and so on, people often test for compositional systematic generalization in relatively toy settings where they've constructed some systematic structure that obeys perfect algebraic rules, and then they say, well, the model fails to do this. And there's a couple of observations to make about that. One is, again, that might not match the structure of the real world, so it might not matter. And in fact, forcing the system to do well on these kind of artificial tasks might actually make them worse at real world tasks. And the other point is that humans often aren't perfectly systematic either. So, you know, certainly when I was teaching math students, I saw this, that, you know, you give people two math problems that are the same, except one of them has different numbers in it or something, and they might actually do perform differently on them. Or people who research compositionality, like Brendan Lake, will teach people sort of structures and see how they compositionally generalize. And people are pretty good at it, but they generalize like 85, 90% of the time, something like that. And so I tend to think that humans aren't perfectly systematic because the structure of the world isn't perfectly systematic. And so having our architectures forced to be perfectly systematic will make them both worse at matching humans in the long run and at understanding the structure of the world. But it's very much an open question. And I think that the people who take a much more pro-symbol stance on this, you know, maybe proven right in the end. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, that, that's really interesting. And you you touched on a lot of interesting points there. So yeah, one is the idea that if you pre-specify the kind of set of operations that your model supports, then that will probably limit its flexibility. Like the things that you pre-specify might not even end up being the things that are really relevant. Uh, to the complexity of the of the different tasks. And I, I think, so you had this other paper on like symbolic behavior, and there was this really cool phrase of syntax-centric view of symbolic processing that you can actually like over overly focus on um, like certain, certain symbols and hard coding those in, but then those might not actually, uh, you know, be sufficient to represent the full complexity of, of things that you need. Yeah, so I, I think that this is a particularly, okay, I think that math is a particularly interesting case for thinking about this. Because if you go back to when did symbols really start to become a thing in AI? Well, it came from Newell and Simon. And some of the things they said were basically that like, you should do I wish I had this quote here. You should do uh, reasoning as sort of like syntactic processing in the way that mathematical proofs work. That's sort of like the way that, re that's the ultimate goal of reasoning is to be like mathematical proofs. 
Um, and if you look at the reactions of actual mathematicians to statements like this, around that time, there were some rather explicit reactions that were like, well, that's not actually how mathematics gets done in research. Writing down a sort of formal proof of something is sort of the, the last step that you do at the end so you can show things to others. But the hard part is actually coming up with the ideas that form the proof. And mm -hmm. there's this great quote from uh, Saunders McLean, I think, that basically he says, to do that, you have to forget all the formal language that this is eventually going to get written down in. You just have to sort of work with examples and understand the problem. And so this, again, relates to some of the ideas I was interested in from my days teaching math about how people come to understand something. And I think it's a very interesting case study of how by focusing too much on the syntax rather than understanding the meaning and the intuitions behind the ideas, you can really miss the heart of what makes something like mathematics interesting and what makes it solvable. So I think the reason that good old-fashioned AI models that relied purely on syntax had a hard time in domains like mathematics is precisely because they were missing these intuitions and meaning that are what allow mathematicians to write down a proof efficiently, because you need to understand what the symbols are about in order to have the ideas that allow you to figure out what the right path to a proof is going to be. Yeah, so like, although the final realization of the proof appears symbolic, the path to get there might involve all these non-symbolic things. Right, yeah. And in this paper, Symbolic Behavior that you mentioned, one of the things we try to do is rethink the way that we think about symbols. And we highlight a perspective on this that comes more from philosophy and semiotics from people like Charles Saunders Peirce, who highlighted the role of the interpreter and sort of the subjective nature of symbols. Symbols mean something because someone thinks that they mean something. And I think this is really important to understanding what good old fashioned AI models were missing because they didn't have this understanding of what, you know, like let's say a, a theorem about group theory. They did not have this sort of intuition for what a group is that a mathematician does. And that allows them to sort of come up with generate ideas about groups and how they relate to other mathematical objects and so on. So I think that this, maybe we could think of things, this kind of reasoning as being symbolic in a sort of semiotic sense. It's just not symbolic in the sort of classical GoFi sense. Mm -hmm. Could you maybe go a bit more into that distinction between or, or the the concept that you introduce in terms of the like the person who is interpret the interpreter, how does that influence the definition of symbol or this idea of symbolic behavior? Right. So, in sort of more classical GoFi systems, at least a symbol would be something that you write down a definition for, like you have a rule like group equals set with operation or something. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what that ignores is sort of the, the role of the person who's understanding that relationship and the fact that that understanding might 
take the form of other knowledge that's not so clearly stated in these terms. Like it might be, include examples of what a group is and how it relates to those components. Each of those examples breaks down to those components like a set and an operation. So for example, it might include the example of like a, a cyclic group and the set there might be, you know, the integers mod some number or something. The operation is sort of like modular arithmetic. Um, and you, when you come to a problem that, or a theorem that's about groups, you can sort of use this example to reason about what those things mean. And so I, I think keeping that interpretation of the symbol in mind might allow you to do kinds of things that you can't do with just a sort of fixed definition of the symbol. So in the symbolic behavior paper, we talk about a variety of these things, which are things like constructing new symbols or even revising a symbol that exists. So for example, if you have a definition that's of numbers that doesn't allow for complex numbers, you can kind of revise that to allow for that possibility. And mm -hmm. I think that's really important to having systems that can develop new knowledge and can flexibly understand the world. Yeah, yeah, that's really fascinating. And I'll, I'll definitely link to this paper. It, it is very, um, it, it gets really philosophical and I'm going to go back and, and read it again after this conversation. Yeah, um, we, may have, we may have gotten a little too rambly and philosophical at times. We're actually cutting it down a bit currently, so... There may be a okay. new version of it sometime soon, <laughs> new and improved. Yeah, so the, the time is, is flying by. So maybe let's, so some of this was done uh, after your PhD and, and you said you're currently working on it. But um, yeah, could you just talk through, uh, so after completing your thesis and your PhD, uh, where are you now and kind of do you see your research as, branching off from what you did during your PhD or going in completely new directions? Yeah, so I'm now working as a research scientist at DeepMind. And I think that my research kind of fits into an overall theme of like cognitively inspired ideas for AI. So most of my projects have been around thinking about some sort of human or human and other animal capability and think that maybe AI doesn't have and thinking about how we could try to give AI a little bit more of that capability. So whether that's memory or this ability to adapt to new tasks, zero shot or whatever, trying to take those abilities and bring them into AI. Um, mm -hmm. Most of my recent work hasn't been directly building on the dissertation, although my paper on memory actually was kind of inspired while I was working on that project from thinking about kinds of architectures that might be able to do a little bit softer version of this. And I hope to someday, maybe, maybe soon, get back to thinking about the ideas in the dissertation, how we can maybe scale them up and make them work in more complex spaces and seeing whether there's actually advantages of that or whether, you know, just using something like language is enough when your task space is rich enough, as we were talking about earlier. Uh-huh, yeah. There's one question that I've asked a couple times on the podcast about the state of the art. I was curious on, like, the different tasks that you've worked on. They're kind of creative. It like, my guess would be there's not as much, like, chasing the, the state of the art. Yeah, like, how do you... 
how do you pay attention to this idea of like soda or beating soda or beating state of the art? Does this like, is this something you think about or um, do you not think about this at all? I've been asking a few different people this question because everyone has a different perspective on it. I try to actively not think about it in general. So I think that by fixating on getting state of the art on some existing data set, you're sort of constraining yourself to a certain way of thinking about a problem. Like if I want to do research on task relationships, there's, you know, without creating my own problems where there where I can annotate these relationships between the tasks, there's just no way to do it. And of course, ultimately, I'd like some of these ideas to help on existing problems. But I think when you're first developing an idea, it can be very useful to sort of figure out what would be the right setting to test this idea in kind of the way that a psychologist designs an experiment to test a theory. So I've taken a lot of inspiration there from my training as a psychologist to thinking about how I can test the ideas I have. And usually that means developing my own kind of experiment that isn't directly, you know, chasing state of the art on things. On the other hand, I think that one can run into problems where one's developing sort of tasks and solutions to that together, solutions that solve those particular tasks that wouldn't really work in any other setting. And in, in some ways, I, you can see my dissertation is this, right? Like I developed a, uh, a method that works when you know these sort of explicit higher order functions among tasks or when you can construct examples of those relationships. And you just don't have that explicit structure in most cases. So in order to make something like my dissertation work in a more realistic setting, you would need to sort of generalize the idea. So I think there are definitely drawbacks to working on custom tasks, but I think for developing new ideas, it's kind of pretty valuable and it lets you do research that's a little more creative and a little bit more different from what everybody else is doing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I really like that how you said that in terms of the um, psychology type training that like if you have, it goes back to this idea of like pre-specifying something up front, like the pre-specified task that's associated with state of the art might not actually line up exactly with like the nuances of what you're actually interested in investigating. And then, yeah, like you're saying, there's a balance because if we do have a state of the art, one of my favorite examples is like with Transformers. I think people started to become convinced about Transformers because it did so well on this really difficult, you know, WMT task. So yeah, there's, there's a mix. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, yeah, let's, um, let's go to the last two questions that I always ask on the thesis review. So the first is about objective functions. If you could describe if you would say that there was an objective function that you were optimizing during your PhD, what would it be? And do you think that it's different now? Yeah, I think it has shifted subtly. So I did my PhD in a psychology department. And as such, I was thinking a lot, even if this isn't so obvious from what actually went into my dissertation about 
the sort of what humans actually do and running a lot of experiments, actually, many of which I never got around to publishing on how humans uh, sort of adapt to and learn new tasks. And so I think I was a little bit more focused during my PhD on trying to both think about the AI problems and to really try to understand what humans are doing. I think as time went on, and especially now, I've kind of concluded that it's hard to do careful comparisons between humans and AI because, you know, as we know from some of my past work and many other people's, the environment, for instance, that an AI is trained in makes a radical difference in how well it's able to adapt to a new situation or generalize or whatever. And it's hard to give our AIs right now the kind of experience that humans have. And so it's hard to say that you really made a fair comparison between the model and the humans. So I think partly because of that challenge, I've shifted more to thinking about, well, how can we develop better AIs and how can we give them more human-like capabilities and also more human-like experiences? And this is the other side of that developing custom task thing is maybe we want to give our agents an experience that's a little bit more like humans, more interactive, includes things like explanation or whatever that humans get during learning that maybe a model that's just trained on ImageNet doesn't. And mm -hmm. so I've shifted more to thinking about the AI side, but still with a vision towards what humans are doing. And ultimately, I think that as we develop better AI methods, we'll be able to learn from them about how the human mind works by seeing what these methods can and can't do in different circumstances, by being able to perform experiments on them where we give them a whole lifetime of experience and control it carefully in a way that you can't control human experience. So I'm very optimistic about learning things about human cognition from AI, but right now I'm thinking more about applying human cognitive ideas to the AI side. I see, yeah. yeah. That's really interesting. And then the last question is, if you could come up with just one piece of advice for a new researcher, and if you want, it could be all-encompassing grand advice, or uh, it could just be a useful heuristic, but one piece of advice for a new researcher. It would definitely be have a life outside of research that is a significant part of your life. So for me, I do a lot of rock climbing. I did a lot, spent a lot of my time rock climbing in grad school. And in fact, I even worked half a day a week at the climbing gym, creating new climbing routes. I don't think Jay, my advisor, ever knew about this. So if he listens to this podcast, I might get in trouble. But I think it was really useful to have that as a sort of you know, another way that you can have fun and a way that you can do something that isn't your research, because no matter how well your PhD and your research goes, there's always going to be bad days when your paper gets desk rejected or you can't replicate your own experiment or whatever. And it's really nice to have something else that you can look forward to on those days. You can go to the gym, make a new climbing problem, have created something for people to try or just climb something yourself. And feel satisfied with that day. So I would say have a life outside of research. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that definitely resonates. For me, it was running, always having running as kind of a common ground. 
throughout the entire PhD. So nice. Yeah. Okay. Well, cool. Yeah. Thanks so much for, for taking the time to do this. Um, like I've said a few times, I, I really enjoyed reading through your thesis. Uh, I really wove together these like interdisciplinary interests really nicely and really got me thinking about, um, yeah, just like not only how humans learn, um, but how machines learn and the kind of rapid progress that we've had towards this like new zero shot, few shot setting. Uh, and then all the stuff about compositionality and symbols. So at this point, people should just go go read it. So <laughs> thanks again right. for uh, for doing this and coming on the thesis review. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been great.